Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. I'd like to read beginning at verse 1 and read through verse 6. Those of you who have been following us in our studies in Revelation on Sunday evenings, you'll recognize that we are uh, studying this morning uh, one of those seven churches. I felt like we needed to move right along in this study of Revelation and uh, so we can get on over into the things that are going to be, uh, though not to say that these uh, churches and the messages are not important, for they are. But I want us to be able to deal sometime uh, uh, just shortly uh, with the things that are going to come. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, let me remind you that that verse is the divine outline of the entire book of Revelation. Chapter 1 verse 19. And John uh, gives this very outline as the Lord Jesus said to him, Write for the uh, write the things which thou hast seen. That's the past tense of this book of Revelation that can, that uh, deals with chapter one of the book of Revelation, the very wonderful, majestic vision John had of our Lord is recorded in chapter one. And then, secondly, he says the second division, the things which are. And that is, he deals with the things which are in, ver in chapter 2 all the way down through chapter 3 of the book of the Revelation. And that contains the Lord's messages to the seven distinct churches of Asia Minor. And so we're studying the things which are. Now, chapter 4, from uh, chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book of the Revelation, John divides that and calls it the things which shall be hereafter. So I wanted you who may not have been with us on Sunday evenings to at least uh, recognize the outline that the Holy Spirit himself gives of this wonderful book of the Revelation. Now in chapter 3, we begin reading at verse number 1, and this is the letter or the message to the church known as the church of Sardis. And the verse says, And unto the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things hath he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead." Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I would remind you before we look at this particular letter in detail that the letters to the seven churches have at least four aspects or four particular directions. Uh, there are four keys, uh, we may say, 
there is, first of all, when you look at these seven letters, there is a, a very practical application of the message to these churches, practical in the sense that it applies to our lives as well as theirs. There is also a perennial message. And that is uh, the perennial aspect of the messages uh, reveals uh, the condition of the professed church at any particular time in its history. That is, from the time of the great beginning of the ministry of the church on the day of Pentecost until the coming again of our blessed Lord. And then there is another aspect of application, and that is the prophetic application. It deals with distinct eras or periods in the history of the professed church. And we showed you from the church, the letter to the church of Ephesus, how that particular characteristic prevailed in the very early church, the apostolic church, the beginning of the church's ministry on this earth. That period, as far as actual history goes, ran up until about the year 100, and some have said perhaps even a, a, a little farther. But the church of Ephesus designated or characterizes that period. The church of Smyrna uh, dealt with the time of the great persecution of the church up until about 300 A.D., and then the church following that, as we have studied, was the church of Pergamos, uh, the church that, uh, that was that uh, awful period of time of great persecution, uh, or of great compromise, rather, in the church, when the church and state joined together. And we saw the tragedy of that. And then the message of Thyatira, which we looked at on our last message uh, of these uh, seven churches, uh, deals with a period uh, when, uh, of, of, of indeed great persecution and yet a time of terrible, terrible influx of false teaching of the occult and so forth. Now then we come without any further background word and I even hesitate to take up your time to do that but only do that for the sake of you who may have not been here. We come to this church, the church of Sardis. On the prophetic calendar of the history of the church, this period of time is that period from about 1500 A.D. up until about the year 1800. It is a very, it is a very, a, a very impressive time in the ministry of the church, but indeed it was a very dangerous time as well. The church found itself perhaps at a crossroads, we could say, as is revealed in this letter to the church of Sardis. At verse number one, if you'd like to take a note, let me just ask you to note verse number one, the first part of it, as the introduction of this letter. The second thing I want you to notice in the second part of verse one and, all, and on through the, and also the second part of verse two, you'll find the indictment that our Lord brings against the church, the indictment. And then at verse 2a and also verse 3, you'll find the instruction that our Lord gives to this particular church. At verse 4, there's the revelation of his insight, the insight, his understanding of the condition of this church. Verse number 5 gives us the incentive. 
The Lord gives to the church an incentive, the promise of reward, the promise of blessing, the promise of crown. And then at verse number six, there is the final note. It is a note of entreaty. Our Lord entreats those, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now looking back at your Bible, let's look at the introductory words at verse one, the first part of the verse. And the verse says, and unto the angel, and the word angel comes from the word angelion, which refers to a messenger. And undoubtedly at this, at this point in the church, he is addressing first the letter to the pastor of the church, who in turn gives that very message to his people. So unto the angel of a messenger of the church of Sardis, right. The word Sardis perhaps is significant in that the word means a remnant or those escaped. Uh, those who have escaped are a remnant. And you'll notice that our Lord talks about those few who have not denied his name nor even soiled their garments. It is a remnant uh, in the church of Sardis. Now that he says, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. A lot of folks read that and they're somewhat puzzled when the Bible talks about the seven spirits of God. The normal question is, is there more than one Holy Spirit? You mean to say there are seven spirits of God in that sense? No, not at all. The Bible reveals that God is one God, yet he is manifest as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit. But rather you'll find that the number seven, which is a number that is found throughout the book of Revelation, is a number of completion. It speaks of completeness or fullness. Now here, the Spirit is referred to as the seven spirits of God a reference to the completeness of the work and ministry and person of the Holy Spirit of God, who, by the way, is a divine personality. God is a divine personality, and he manifests himself as Father, as Son, as Holy Ghost. A man may refer to himself as, I am a man, I am a husband, I am a father, but he refers to the same person. So we're referring to God, the Holy Spirit. We're referring to the one God the Bible reveals. But the manifestation of that God as the Holy Spirit. Now then here, the seven spirits, the key to the understanding of what he's saying in here, I think you'll find back in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, turn with me to chapter 11 and read with me verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 11 and verses 1 and 2. And here you'll find the scripture referring to the very spirit of God and the different facets of his ministry which make up the completeness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now watch carefully. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. We know the prophecy refers to the Lord Jesus. But now watch verse two. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. Now, the verse is not referring to different spirits per se, but rather the different facets of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I think you'll find uh, all uh, of that that Isaiah mentions here as Jesus talks to us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, all of these things are used in reference to different aspects of his ministry. Certainly the Holy Spirit was evident in the life of this one who is referred to in verse 1 as a, as a rod that will come forth out of the stem of Jesse, a branch that grows out of his roots. That is the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit definitely was upon our Lord. His ministry was performed under the power and the direction and the authority of the Holy Spirit. But now we'll look how that ministry is described here in this second verse. He talks about the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of wisdom, which simply means uh, the ability to see life and things through the eyes of God. Now, I remind you of this, if you're a born-again child of God, you have dwelling within you today the person of God's Holy Spirit. He lives in you. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost who is in you and you're not your own? So the Holy Spirit's ministry, not only evident in the life of Christ, but indeed that aspect of his ministry that he wants to make available to the child of God. So as we yield to the Holy Spirit, we can understand something of the ministry of the Spirit in the realm of wisdom. He gives us wisdom. He helps us to see life. He helps us to see the world around us through the eyes of God, through the eyes of the Word of God. So he indeed manifests himself in this sense of the spirit of wisdom. Not only that, but the spirit of understanding. The Holy Spirit is he who lives within us that gives us understanding of the things of God. The natural man, Paul said, receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned or understood. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives even the believer the understanding of the things of God. Not only that, but he is manifest as the spirit of counsel. Remember, Jesus said when the spirit was come as far as his ministry of the church, he will guide you into all truth. Is that not what a counselor does? A true counselor will guide you into the truth. And so the Holy Spirit manifests his ministry in the sense that he guides us into the truth of God, the truth of his word. He as well guides us in the decisions of life and the, life and the pathway of life that we follow. And then notice something else. He has manifested the spirit of might. That simply means the spirit of power. The Holy Spirit has been given to every believer that we might have power or authority to be a witness for the Savior. Acts 1.8, you remember, said, And when the Spirit has come upon you, you shall receive power, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the world. So is the Holy Spirit who enables the child of God even to be the witness that indeed God has designed him to be. It is the Holy Spirit of power. Not only that, but he talks about the knowledge, the aspect of knowledge. Uh, the Bible said, what man knoweth the, th- uh, the things of man, uh, or, uh, or wh- who knoweth the things of God, save the Spirit of God. And, and Paul would remind us in that, that the Holy Spirit's knowledge is of the Heavenly Father. And yet Jesus said in, in chapter 16 of John, that he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. He will teach you all things. All of those were references to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
He, he is our teacher. He is our interpreter of the truth of God in our hearts. And then notice one other thing that's said here in Isaiah 11, verse 2, the last mention, and of the fear of the Lord. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to a place of reverence of Christ, a reverence before God. We stand in awe as the Holy Spirit reveals him to us more and more and day by day. So is the Holy Spirit whom Jesus said, he will not speak of himself, but he shall, he shall speak of me. He will show you things to come. So this aspect of the Holy Spirit as seen here in the, in the Revelation and designated as the, as the seven spirits of God are but a, a revelation of the completeness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, giving knowledge, understanding, wisdom, counsel, reverence, and power in our lives. So thank God for the Holy Spirit. Without Him, we would be powerless. Without Him, we'd be in the dark. Without Him, we'd have no counsel. We'd have an understanding of the things of God. So then he introduces here at verse 1 uh, that characteristic of uh, the Spirit of God. And also he says, and he hath the seven stars. The seven stars. The very ministers, the servants, the messengers of Christ. The church itself he holds uh, in his hand. And so here is the very uh, introduction of his message to the church in Sardis. Now look at the latter part of verse 1. And you'll see the indictment the Lord brings against them. And he says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. In one terse statement, our Lord simply sums up the problem in the church of Sardis. It is a church that has a reputation, but it doesn't have the goods to back it up. It has a lot in the display window in the front of the store, but nothing in stock or nothing on the shelves. It is nothing but a name. It is dead, and that's a terrible indictment that our Lord must bring against any church or against any professed believer. You have a name, but he said, in reality, you are dead. Now, the word death in the scripture implies separation. And I think the underlying thought is simply this. You have separated yourself from me. You're going out on your own. You're working. You're laboring in the energy of the flesh. You're not letting the Holy Spirit do his work through your life. And you see, folks, it's, it's possible. And we face a danger here at return of constantly doing, but yet doing apart from God. We must ever be watchful and careful that our ministry is empowered and directed and blessed by the very presence of God himself. Without that, we're nothing but an empty name and an empty shell. We have a name that we live, but indeed are dead. Now here the Lord simply is saying something of that period, I think, that this, in the church's history that this church represents. It is a representation and characteristic of that period known as the time of the Reformation. The period of the Reformation. The time of Martin Luther, of Savonarola, of John Huss, of Wycliffe, of many of those who were leaders in the time and the period of the Protestant Reformation. But the Lord said, now watch carefully what he's saying. You have a name that you live, but he said, in reality, you are dead. 
What an indictment that is to bring upon any church or any group. But I think you'll find that the progression that has occurred in, in mainline Protestantism, this is an apt description of the, of the mainline Protestant church in our world. And yet uh, some people call us as Baptists, a part of the Protestant movement. I don't necessarily think that. I think there's a bunch of radicals that is even outside of that Protestant movement before uh, that got underway. And yet again, what I want you to understand is these had a great beginning. They did a lot of things and we praise God for things that were done. But as you'll notice, our Lord says to this church, I, one thing I must say, that I do not find your works perfect before God. That is, they're not complete. Something was started in the Protestant Reformation that did not reach its ultimate fulfillment, not completion. And I think if you're a student of history, you can very well discern that. But here he said, this indictment, you have a name that you live, but you're dead. Reminds me of the Pharisees. Jesus said on the outside, you're like a whited sepulcher. There are beautiful colors, the whiteness of it, the flowers, the decoration. You're like a grave. And he said it's very appealing, but inwardly you're full of riot. You're full of uncleanness. You're full of extortion. There is dead men's bones on the inside. And yet that's the picture of many a person in our religious world. They have a name that they live and they claim to be a child of God, but there's no evidence of it in their life. There is no manifestation of God's power in their life. Oh, they go through the form. They're a member of the church. They've been ducked in the baptistry. They can sing the hymns. They can quote a verse or two. But as far as real life on the inside, there is none. And folks, listen to me. It is possible for a man or woman to be religious and yet as lost and dead spiritually as, as any soul who writhes in the agony of hell today. So a fellow can have a name that he's a Christian, he can profess to be. But the thing that makes the difference is whether or not he possesses Jesus Christ. And how many I've met all along the trail of life in my ministry who have said, yes, I've been a member of the church. I've been a deacon, I've had some say. I've been a, a choir member. I've been a Sunday school teacher. Yes, I've been a preacher. I've been a missionary. But I've had a name that I'm a child of God. But in reality, I have never, ever received Jesus Christ in my heart. Oh, what a sad situation. And yet, just having the name's not going to get the job done when you stand before God. The Lord judges a man from what's in his heart. So be careful that you not have simply like Sardis a name, but yet you're dead on the inside. We have all the paraphernalia, all the robes of religion, all the regalia, but yet inwardly there is death. You see, man, apart from Jesus Christ, is spiritually dead. Paul said in Ephesians 2 that you were dead in trespasses and sin. And the only way life can come spiritually is for a man or woman to personally receive Jesus Christ into his heart. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. John said, he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Regardless of how religious, regardless how active you are, regardless how many verses you can quote, how many songs you can sing, how often you go to church, the only thing that will give you life spiritually is the reception of Jesus Christ into your heart. So these had a name that they were alive, but they were dead. Look at the latter part of verse 2. The further indictment is this. 
For I have not found thy works perfect before God. The word perfect simply means mature or complete or full. Your works have not been complete. It reminds me of some of the ancient kings in Israel. An ancient king, a king would come to the throne and there'd be great reformation in the, in, and among the people of Israel. For example, a king would come in and he'd do away with Baal worship. He'd tear down the idols. But oftentimes, he would leave the groves where people slip away to on the mountainites and there worship their little false gods. And that's, that was definitely a, a failure to completely do and follow the will of God. On the other hand, there were those who followed the Lord altogether. I think of old Caleb. And the Bible said of Caleb that he wholly followed the Lord. W-H-O-L-L-Y. We got a lot of halfway followers of Jesus in this day. We got few who indeed are willing to follow God altogether, 100%. We take what we want and we leave the rest. We take what appeals to us and we reject the rest. But what God wants are those who will follow through completely in their lives to a full surrender, a complete surrender of their lives and of their service to God. So he said of these, oh, you started out beautifully and there's a lot of works and activity. I know your works. But he said, your works are not complete. They're not finished. You see, when Martin Luther came in the scene of the Reformation period, there was a message that God gave him and it was an accurate message. Calling the world and the tension of men back to the fact that men are justified by faith, not by the works nor deeds of the law. Thank God for that. But Martin Luther was not so interested in doing away with the Roman church that was the instigator of all that. Even there was permitted in some still the lighting of candles, the idols, the angels and so forth. But yet what I'm saying, they started a good work, but it was not a completed work, I believe, as God wanted it to be. And so he said, this is my indictment. You have a name that you live, but you're dead. Secondly, yet he said, your works I know, but they are not completed works. They're not full work. Oh, that you and I would go on to wholly follow the Lord. Some of you have jumped in, but you're only ankle deep in your life spiritually. What God wants you to do is wade out till it gets over your head, and then your life will begin to take on meaning as a Christian that God intends it to have. God help us to jump in. God help us to give lock, stock, and barrel, hook, line, and sinker. Go all the way with God in your serving him. And so that's the indictment. Look at the instruction at verse number two, the first part of the verse, verse 2a. And he says, the beginning of his instruction to them, be watchful. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. When he says be watchful, he's simply saying this, wake up. He said you've been asleep on the job. I was reminded when I read that of our Lord's parables in Matthew 13. And of this parable of the sower, or of the, of, the, of the field that had both good seed and bad seed in it. And the man went out, planted his wheat, but when he came back, he found that someone had sowed tares. And Jesus said it like this, and while men slept, his enemy so dares. So what the Lord is saying to the church of Sardis and even to us on a personal level is that we need to be awake. You see, the devil has the greatest advantage in your life when you're asleep spiritually. 
He has the greatest advantage when you're asleep in your home as a father and mother. And many a mother and dad's asleep today. They're not aware of what's going on in the life of their youngsters. They're not aware of the filth and the garbage they're absorbing over modern day corrupted television shows. They're not aware of what is being suggested to their minds through modern rock music and the vulgar rap kind of stuff that's going on. It's time for mother and dads to wake up. And yet again in our churches we've gone to sleep. And as a result, in the Protestant uh, uh, arena, uh, churches went to sleep and churches that once stood firm and preached with fire, the Word of God have gone to sleep and liberalism has come in and taken over. I think of the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, and the beginning of the Methodist church. And yet when, the, when Methodism was born, it was one of the fieriest evangelistic movements in the world. They swept many hundreds and thousands of people into the family of God. I think of only uh, of previous generations of Sam Jones, born or, and lived over here in Cedartown, Georgia. A great evangelist, went all over the country preaching the gospel. But I think on the part of so many of my Methodist friends, how they, how they wilt and how they, uh, how they writhe on, uh, in the agony of many a liberal preacher who stands in the pulpit, denies the virgin birth, doesn't even believe in the inspiration of the Bible, denies the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about every Methodist church. Don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about in general. And yet I've seen it happen in my lifetime. I used to attend the Methodist church when I was a boy. They had preachers that had preached the gospel. They proclaimed the message of Christ. And yet to see how, that, how those churches have gone to the compromise of the word of God. And I'm not just jumping on Methodists. I'm jumping on Baptists. It happened in Baptist churches. Many a Baptist church, many a Baptist convention and conference and fellowship has gone to sleep. And we let liberalism come in and take over. And we have a name now that we're alive, but we're dead. God help us to be awake and see what's going on and vigilant lest the enemy come in and overrun the camp. strengthen. And the word strengthen means to make strong or to establish. Well, the Lord is saying to these in Sardis is this, you need to firm up the foundation. You need again to remind people of the fundamentals of the faith, of the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the blood atonement, the verbal inspiration of the scripture, the return of our blessed Lord. Remind them, strengthen them in that very faith and in that truth. Not only that, but he goes on down, if you'll notice, in verse number three with continued instruction. And he says to them, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. Remember, he said, remember how you heard. Remember the message that has been proclaimed. So easy for us to forget. Pat and I this past week while I was in Pennsylvania went down to get his bird. And all again, I was reminded with the monuments and all of the, uh, uh, the memorials and all of the books and the films and so forth. I was reminded again of what great sacrifice men made in this country as they fought for what they believed. And yet God is saying to us, you need to remember that. 
Remember how you received. Remember that you received the pure gospel of Christ. And as you remember that, resign yourself and, and surrender yourself that you'll again proclaim that glorious message of life in Jesus Christ. Remember how you received. Remember how you heard. And not of that, but he said, hold fast. That is, get a grip on it. Get a grip on this truth that you have heard and that you have received. And then his further instruction was repent. Repent. You need to change. Change from what you are. Turn away from that sleepiness, that sleep of death, that spiritual drowsiness. Repent of that. Turn away from it. Come alive. Ah, indeed, an instruction that is timely for us. And then not only that, but look at verse 4. The fourth verse gives the insight of our Lord of this people. He says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled our garments. As a whole, the professed church in Sardis had drifted away into worldliness, into sins of the flesh. But he said, I, I know that in Sardis there are few who have not defiled their garments. You see, God's remnant has always been a few. It's never been the majority. And if you're a child of God today, really saved, you're in a minority. You're not in the majority when you go to school, you teens go to school this fall, you'll not be in the majority if you're a dedicated, born again, separated Christian. You'll not be in the majority. Might as well remember that. As a mother, dad on the job, you're not going to be in a majority as a child of God. The few have always been those, that remnant, who loved the Lord, who knew what it meant to be born again, and who willingly followed what our Lord instructed them in. Jesus said, few there be that go in this straight and gate, this narrow way that leads unto life. Whereas on the other hand, many of those which go in the broad way. You see, it's always the few that seems to have been that remnant that carries God's business on. Think of the few today of born again believers who are dedicated witnesses and soul winners. The few, think of it right here in our church. It is the few. Think of it again in the average church. It is the few who really maintains the financial stability of the average church. I understand that perhaps less than 10% of the average Baptist church, I don't know, that may not be the case here, and I don't think it is. But, uh, there's a, but the, on an average, less than 10% of the average Baptist church carries the financial load of that particular church. It's only the few. It is the only the few who are really willing to get in there and give of themselves of their time, of their energies, and to serve God with all their heart. So the Lord will tell you this. You may be in the minority, but God knows about you. He knows. He sees. And he reminds them in Sardis of the fact that he knows of these few. And then notice verse 5. He gives some incentive. And he says, he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Now somebody said, preacher, does that mean that a fellow's name can be blotted out? He's saved and then he gets lost again. Is that what that's saying? Not at all. Notice it is not a negative statement at all. It's positive. I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. The Lord is simply saying that when you come with me, you don't have to worry about it being blotted out. If you're saved, you're secure. If you're saved, you're saved eternally. 
God's not threatening them and saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to blot your name out. He rather affirmed the fact and gave them the sense of security. And he said, I will not. I will not blot out your name. Now, I think that came as a very timely thing, especially in the period of the Reformation, when many a man and woman was excommunicated from the Roman church because he followed the teachings of Christ. He would not succumb to all of the teachings of Rome. And so they'd actually strike their names off the roll book. They'd excommunicate them. And so what a comfort it was when the Lord would say to these people, hey, you don't have to worry about being excommunicated. You don't have to be worried about your name being stricken off the roll. When I saved you, I saved you forever. I will not blot out your name out of the book of life. And then he said, but I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. And Jesus said again, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father in heaven. If you'll acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you before my father in heaven. What an incentive then to stay faithful and to walk humbly and truthfully with him. Finally, look at verse six. Here is the entreaty that he gives. It's a very common thing in all of these letters. The Lord says over and over again in each one of these letters, he concludes and says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Do you know what the problem has been with most of us and most of our churches throughout history? The problem has been hearing and heeding what God says. Little wonder that he says it over and over again. Hear me, hear me. If you have an ear, use your ear for the purpose God gave it. Hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And so what our Lord is saying simply is this, I want to give you an incentive or an entreaty, and I entreat you to unstop your ears. He said, first of all, you're dead. Now he says, awake, and now he said, you're possibly deaf. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Let me ask you today, are you hearing what God's saying to you in your life? Down in your heart you have heard. Many a man has the capability of hearing, but he does not heed what God says. We know God's will, but we refuse to do it. Maybe I talked to somebody the other day who's a child of God. As these few in Sardis who would not defile their garments. But again, the Lord's saying, if you have ears, hear. What do you know about what God wants you to do? Does he want you to be faithful? Does he want you to be true? Does he want you to honor him? Does he want you to give testimony of him? Then he said, if you have ears, do what I'm telling you to do. Take heed to the very message that he has given. Are you among the few? Thank God for it if you are. If you're not, you can be. And you can be by opening your heart and life and inviting Jesus Christ to come in right here today. You can walk out of this house knowing for sure with a sense of security that if you trust Jesus Christ, he's promised I'll not blot your name out. I'll not blot your name out. I'll promise you eternal life. And that's what, I'm, that's what I'm giving you through faith in him. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Our heads are bowed as we pray together. I do not know what God may be dealing with you about in your life. But I think you full well know. Maybe you're a child of God. Maybe you're saved. Have you been hearing what God's saying to you? Have you been hearing what he's been saying to you about the life you live? about where you're investing your time, about whether or not you're honoring God. Do you have ears to hear? Then the Lord's saying, hear. Hear what the Spirit says to the church. Maybe somebody here today too falls in the category of some who have a name that they live, but they're dead. All of your Christianity is external. Is there anything on the inside? That's where it counts. That's where it counts. 
Could you say today with assurance, with a surety in your heart, that if I were to die today, I know heaven is my home. I have trusted Jesus Christ with all my heart. Now, I'm not talking about going through a little ritual, a little ceremony, or just walking down an aisle. But is there evidence of life on the inside? Where there's life, there's response. If there is death, there's no response. And I believe men and women who are alive spiritually, when they hear the truth of God, there's a response in their heart to that. There's a sensitivity about the word of God. And if you're saved today and you're out of the will of God, I believe you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction in your heart. You know some things are not right. The attitude of your heart, the actions of your life, the reactions of your life, you know they're not right. If so, won't you do what God said to Sardis? Repent, remember, and repent. Turn around. Walk out of this church today different than you were when you came with a different attitude, a different goal, a different devotion in your life. And if you're here today and you're not saved, I beg you to trust Christ. And maybe somebody here, you know what God wants you to do about membership in this Bible-believing church. You fell for a long time. This is what God wants you to do. Maybe you need to come today and say, Pastor, I feel like God wants me to be a part of this church. And I want to do what God's asked me. I'm going to open my ears. I want to hear what he's saying. If that's God's dealing in your heart, God's will in your life, I urge you to do that. Let's stand together as we pray. Every head bowed as we continue in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that the will of God will be done. Lord Jesus, help us not to be people who have just a name, but help us to be real. Lord, help us not to just have uh, quantity, but help us to have quality. Lord, help us to be on the inside what we claim to be on the outside. Do a work in our hearts. There are those here today who need to come to trust your Savior. There are those who are saved that, Lord, need to come back to you and dedicate anew their life to you. Their life's been drifting, have been floundering around as a Christian, and time's getting away from us. Moments of life that'll never return. God help them to dedicate themselves today. And then some who need to come to the fellowship of our church. Maybe they need to come from another church by promise of letter or by statement, or maybe by baptism. May they do what you've asked, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray.